0: we're going to go ahead and uh, begin this morning and uh, b- before I before I pray for us and start I'll just give you a uh, an apology in advance this is I think the second time somehow I've managed to do this between my computer and that one some of the quotes on here because of the f- of font issues I blame well I was going to say I blame the mac but it's probably my fault in some mysterious way you're going to see like little uh E, do you take exception? Okay, second time. Fool me once, shame on you. Yeah, that's right. I, I'll, take, I'll take it. Um, so you're going to see some, uh, like a letter E with an accent mark, where there should be some quotation marks sometimes, so just disregard that and then, then we'll be fine, but sorry about that. I hope that's not a distraction. Uh, let's let's uh, pray, ask the Lord to bless our time, and, uh, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, we, we do just that. We, we come because of your work in us. We come um, because we want to be here. We, we see the, the need that we have to grow in fellowship. We see, the, we see those things as, uh, as exciting and wonderful, uh, a, a, uh, a breath of fresh air to us to be with each other and to grow in our understanding of who you are and how you have made us and what you expect of us. Thank you, God, for working that in us; that we have the desire for that. We don't run from that anymore. Uh, we 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 want it. Nonetheless, the, the flesh is weak often, and it's uh, early in the morning. And Lord, so we pray that you would sharpen our thinking. Help us to to be able to to um, um, to think carefully and deeply this morning with some of the things we'll be looking at that are uh, that are that can be challenging. And so we ask you, Lord, for for your your help, and your blessing uh, in that. We, we pray for uh, Bobby and Marty and um, and their family in California right now, those who are with them. Please uh, continue to protect them while they're there and as they come back this week. Thank you for the chance you're giving them to, to, to be uh, there with Tricia and Dave. Um, God, we love you. And we thank you for your kindness to us and your mercies that are new every morning. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we, we are uh, finished with the Ian Hamilton study we've been doing for several weeks now, uh, and I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, that came on the heels of um, six weeks that we spent in, the, in John Frame's book, The Doctrine of God. Uh, and in the, if you remember, uh, if you were here for those, what we were doing in that six weeks was we were trying to get a picture of the bigness, the greatness of God according to Scripture. Uh, as we looked at what the Bible says about God being our Lord. You remember that? That was the study, the lordship of God. What does it mean that he's the Lord? And um, we found that to have three components. That speaks of God's control, his His strength and power that he exerts over the creation. It speaks of his authority, and it speaks of his covenant presence with us as his creation. Um, n- then we went to that Hamilton study and, and spent some time thinking about, how does a big picture of God flesh out in our, just our day-to-day living? How does that affect our worship? How does it affect our, our trust in Him? Uh, these sorts of things. We come now back to, uh, to a, uh, a specific study of God some more here. And this is going to jump to kind of harken you back to early January. I don't know if we can put it up on the screen here. Uh, Will I do it in, yeah. Let me come back to where we are here. All right, so March 31st is where we are today. Tomorrow is April. First quarter of the year is done already. We're practically to 2020. If you look back up to January 20th, you see chapter 4 there, God's control, efficacy, and universality. If you can remember back to January 20th, uh, what you'll remember is this. We saw a uh, a very... um, broad and deep uh, presentation of what the Bible says about the extent to which God's in control of his creation. Uh, and we, we thought about it in two terms. How strong is his grip? Or is it possible for him to, to involve himself in something but for it to sort of slip through his fingers or wriggle out of his, of his grasp? And then how far does his grip extend? How far does he actually engage in uh, sovereign control over his creation. When we were finished with that, it left us with some questions. And he even said at the end of that chapter that uh, this brings up some really serious questions and we'll get to those questions in chapter 8. And so now here we are about uh, two months later to return to those questions. So let me just re- remind you real quickly the high points of what we saw in chapter 4 because this jumps off of that. All right, so we saw that God's control is, and we use two words, His control is efficacious, which means it always accomplishes its purposes. God's purposes are never thwarted or disappointed. God has never snapped His finger and moved to a plan B. There's never been a plan B in, God's, uh, in the mind of God. Uh, we also saw that God's control in that efficacious way is universal. Uh, universal, and frame fleshed that out by bringing us through a number of categories and then just hitting us with passage after passage in the Bible that, that speaks directly to God's control in those realms. So we saw that God is Lord over the natural world in general. He is Lord over human history and the flow of human history. He's Lord over our individual lives he chose the number of days in my life before I came to be. He knows exactly what they will be because he has control in that realm. Uh, he has control over human decisions so that the decisions of kings are like a stream in the hand of the, of the Lord. And he turns them as he wills. Uh, even into the realm of sin. Sin is not a realm in which um, God does not have control. That's not what's going on when sin is happening. Um, and in the realm of faith and salvation, uh, the other side of that then, God is also uh, exercising control. And so Frame's last sentence in that chapter was, God controls all things. God controls all things. The first sentence in chapter 8 is this. Oh, no, I don't have it up here. Let me read it to you. Here's the first thing he says in chapter 8. The doctrine that God controls all things, including human decisions, typically raises for us the question, how then can we be responsible for our actions? Answering this question has been a major preoccupation of theologians who write about the doctrine of God. So this morning we're all going to be theologians preoccupied with this question um, in light of the control of God, even in the realm of human decisions. What does that mean about us? in terms of our choices and our decisions. And we're going to think of it in in two pieces. So there's kind of two questions we'll look at this morning. Uh, The first one is, in light of God's control, how can we say biblically, or excuse me, can we say uh, biblically that we are responsible for our decisions? And I'll just give you a spoiler. The Bible will say, yes, we are responsible for what we choose, what we do, we have that responsibility. So then if that's the case, well, how? How is it that I'm responsible for my decisions and for how I live and what I do if this is a realm in which God exercises control? Um, And the second question is, in light of God's control, this is almost, some people can think of this more as like a philosophical question, Um, but but it's still just as relevant to what we're talking about. In light of God's control, is it really we who are making these choices? Or do I just think I'm making a choice, but really I'm confused. I'm actually a robot, and God is the one making all my choices, but I think that I am. Is that what his control means? Uh, And it is not what his control means, but you can see why that question would come up for us if we're speaking of of God's control in the realm of our our choices. Um, Now, we couch that second question in terms of freedom, this is a question about my freedom. I chose, um, back when I talked with that person and I decided to not tell them the truth, I chose to lie. But was it really a free choice that I, that I engaged in to lie? And this morning, I chose oatmeal for breakfast. But was it really a free choice of mine to eat that bowl of oatmeal? Um, what do I mean by a free choice? Was it a choice at all? And so uh, you can see the two parts of our title this week. The, the chapter eight's title is Human Responsibility and Freedom. Responsibility and Freedom. So that's the way we're going to uh, approach these. Uh, we'll look at the first question first. Responsibility. Uh, am I responsible for my decisions biblically? Can you think of places in the Bible where we are said to bear responsibility before God for what we do? Is there one or two of those? Or is it on virtually every page of Scripture that creatures answer to their creator? Right? Um, Frame starts like he does in several places, and I've always appreciated this. He, 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 he's concerned that we're careful with our definitions of uh, what we mean. So here's one thing he says. He says the term responsibility is not found in English translations of the Bible. So if we are to use the term, doesn't mean we can't use the term here, but if we're going to use the term, we need to link it to some biblical concepts and teachings so that we know exactly what we're talking about and what places to go uh, in God's word. And one biblical concept that Frame raises for us to use Uh, in order to think biblically about this question, is the concept of accountability. That is a a term that's used in our English Bibles in these these senses, accountability. Um, And in those terms, the Bible's answer to this is a very clear one. Are we accountable to God for our decisions? The answer is yes. Yes, we are. Um, Frame says this, Human accountability means that human beings are subject To God's evaluation, and are therefore under obligation to obey His commands and observe His standards. It presupposes that God is the judge, the supreme evaluator of our conduct. So, when we look into the Bible on this issue of responsibility in terms of being accountable to God, uh, we find that the biblical authors um, are very much aware of this reality in play. And there are so many places we could go to see these sorts of things, but let me put several of them up here for you. Oh, my. And that's even smaller than I intended. So this is Matthew 12:36. Can you actually read that out there? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I did go through and work to try to make things larger than they seemed on my screen. So here's what Matthew 12:36 says. Uh, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And we're going we're seeing each of these in this con, this general concept of authority but every one of them has some fear in it this one is certainly uh, no exception right People will give account for every careless word they speak that that assumes an accountability with this one who is our judge on the day of judgment First um, Corinthians 10:31 uh, ethically neutral actions like eating and drinking are We're we're told to do those things, even, to uh, to God's glory. There is accountability as to how we conduct ourselves in our eating and our drinking. Colossians 3.17 uh, says, Everything that we do must be done thankfully, in Jesus' name. Uh, Frame says, Practically every page of Scripture displays God's sovereign evaluations of human attitudes, thoughts, words, and deeds. This next one is interesting all by itself. uh, We need to think about it for just a second. We are even responsible for what we are. We are responsible to God for what we are, not just what we do. So he says, uh, we did not, see if you agree with this. I'll break it into a couple of parts. We did not individually make ourselves evil by nature. You agree with that? You were born sinful in your nature. Did you do that to yourself? Did you decide that? Is that a choice that you made, or is that just what you are and what I am? We did not individually make ourselves evil by nature, but we are responsible for that evil anyway. Our inheritance from Adam is not the result of our individual choice, but we must bear the guilt of it. The Bible, especially in Romans, is very clear about that reality. And in fact, it uses that truth as the basis for what God is doing in Christ. Because that's the same way he operates through his son. We are not responsible in any way. We did not make any choices connected to what Jesus has done in giving himself as a ransom and in rescuing a people for himself. But because of the plan of God as these things unfold... Uh, God causes my sins to fall on Him and imputes His righteousness to me uh, because He represents His people to God. what, What role did I play in that? Absolutely none. But thank God He has chosen to work with us that way. That's the same way He has worked with us through Adam. When Adam fell, we all fell in Him. And that has fundamentally changed our natures. But we bear responsibility for that as we stand before God. Uh, We are responsible to seek salvation. He he, he lists off some things that the Bible commands of us, that we're responsible for. That I think, at least for me, uh, in a a Reformed tradition, as a Calvinist, it's not language I'm used to to using, but it is true language. Um, So Joshua 24, you think of Joshua's uh, speech to the people uh, Frame looks at that and says, we must make a decision to serve the Lord. John 1.12, we must receive Christ. It's commanded of us to do that. John 3.16. John 6.40, we must believe in Him. Acts 2.38, we must repent and believe. Frame says, as we have seen, God chooses us before we choose Him, and His choices bring ours about. But we must choose, nevertheless. And if we do not make that choice, we will not be saved. No one is saved apart from a decision to put their faith in Christ. Who is ultimately responsible for that decision? Who has uh, caused that decision? We're thinking of control. Well, that is is in the sovereign plan of God. But my activity is not uh, removed as a result of that. And the end result is just like chapter 4 ended, he says at the end of this list. So we are responsible for everything we are and do. And the biblical authors affirm this in some other places too, some interesting places. Oh, there's that quote, we are responsible for everything we are and do. It's amazing to me to see how many places in the Bible um, the authors speak of God's sovereign control over a situation and those actors uh, individual responsibility in the situation. They speak of them together, uh, and they don't seem to feel a need to apologize for it. I remember hearing a, a professor one time speak of that and how quickly we can look at those passages and act like the author was just a little bit dumb and wrote a contradiction, but just wasn't smart enough to notice that it was a contradiction. And he said, we should generally... Uh, forget exactly how he said it, but he basically said, we should... We're, we're generally safe to come to God's word assuming that the biblical writers know just a little bit more than we do. It's, it's not safe to come with this sort of prideful assumption. They know what they're writing. They're pretty smart guys, which means these are not contradictions that they're writing here. They are reflecting the tension between the, this dual activity, that God controls the situation, and nonetheless, within that, the human actors inside of it are responsible. So here's some examples of those places. Genesis 50, um, the story of Joseph, uh, he rebukes the brother's wicked intentions, but also mentions the good intentions of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 and following, God condemns Assyria and the Assyrian king. uh, But it's clear in that passage, the Assyrian king is being used by God, brought by God, to punish Israel. And so he speaks in those terms, and then he turns around and says, uh, and and proceeds to judge the Assyrian king for the wickedness in his heart that brought him to the nation to to do these things. Incidentally, that's the passage we'll be in this morning uh, during the sermon, looking more closely at that. I wanted us to get to see one of these uh, in some depth. And so we'll be back in Isaiah 10 uh, this morning. Uh, Proverbs 16, 4 and 5 says, The Lord works out everything for his own ends even the wicked, for a day of disaster. So there's God's clear plan proceeding. The Lord works out everything for his ends. He works, out, works the life of the wicked out for the day of disaster. And then look at the next sentence. The Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. 1 Kings eight, fifty eight. Uh, Solomon prays that God... So he's speaking to the people and he, and he prays on their behalf. He prays to God. And what he prays is this. God, turn our hearts to you that we may walk in all of your ways. Right? He finishes praying and he turns to the people and he exhorts them and he says to them, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and to obey his commands as at this time. See, he doesn't pray to God that God would turn their hearts to him and keep their hearts to him and then finish and say, whew, well, I sure hope that God answers that prayer. He turns to them and he says, you must commit your heart to the Lord. Um, John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Yet to all who received him, so this is distinguishing between people who have done a certain thing versus others who have not, right? To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And look at the next half. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Do you see the two at play? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is in Peter's sermon about Jesus and what's just happened. He says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and then he sticks his finger in their chest. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And if you remember how that ends, they are not at all confused about whether they have responsibility in this situation because they are, it says, they were cut to the heart and they immediately said, brothers, what must we do to be saved? They're not confused about this. Um, Acts 13 48, this is, this is a, these next couple especially, I don't know, I I just, uh, they're, they're helpful to me. Um, The apostles are preaching, they finish uh, preaching to a group of Gentiles, and it says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Every one of them whom God had appointed before time to put their faith in him, all of them did, and no one for whom that is not the case but then in the very next, like two, two verses later in chapter 14, it speaks of their preaching ministry, their evangelism. It says, there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. It's not, uh, it's not going against what was just said, but it is saying that God used human means. What they did and how they did it mattered and had an effect, a real effect. Acts 27 Uh, Paul is on a ship uh, in some really rough waters, and he's comforting his shipmates. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar." And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I mean, how certain is that? So take heart, men, Paul says, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And they get nearer to the land. The storm continues and some of the men start to panic and put down the little dinghies, the boats to get away. And verse 31, Paul goes to the centurion in, I mean, in a hurry and he says to him, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Why didn't he go take a nap? What's what's he worried about? Well, One of these things is not true apart from the other. Both of them are working. And the Bible is not um, unclear about that, and it's not embarrassed about that. What needs to happen is, for us, we must wrestle with how do these things come to be. So even, so, the Bible, even in the places where God's ultimate control is expressed clearly, the Bible says to us, you are responsible for your actions. Now that part is not the part that is really as difficult for us. The, the more difficult part is the how question. Okay, I see that this is what the Bible says, but how is this the case? Why is this the case? How can he hold me accountable for decisions and actions that rest under his control? To answer that, we need to shift here to the matter of freedom. I'm going to jump, if you've read the chapter, I'm going to jump a little bit out of order and then come back. Um, But we can't answer this how question without thinking about the nature of freedom itself. So let me paint a picture for you. This is one I've taken from him. I didn't come up with this. Um, Imagine Billy, all right? Eight-year-old Billy. With a name like Billy, he's probably going to be a... Uh, be a mischievous little boy. I don't know. So Billy uh, is found on the school premises with a can of spray paint in his hands. Right? There's graffiti on the school door, and there he is. And they they talk with him, and he admits it. Yes, he is the one who sprayed the door. Right? Is he responsible for that action, for what he did? Yeah, yeah. He's responsible. Right? It was his fault. He's the one who did it. Does it change anything for you if you learn later that there's not just 8-year-old Billy, there's also 18-year-old Mike? And 18-year-old Mike put that can in his hand and threatened him with bodily harm if he didn't go up and spray paint that door. Does that change the situation to you at all? It does to me. Um, That definitely changes the situation. Not that... uh, not that Billy, i got to keep the name straight. Not that Billy didn't do it, but we would call that now an act under duress, right? Um, we would not necessarily, in the same way, call that a free act. He was, he, that was done under compulsion, right? So he would still technically be the responsible agent, but what would have changed there is his liability in this situation. 18-year-old Mike has changed that quite a bit here. And so Billy's liability uh, decreases dramatically. Now, let's apply that kind of an idea to me and to you when we sin. Right? When you choose to sin, is, is there someone making you do that? Is someone else compelling you against your will to sin? When you chose to tell the half-truth, when you, when, when you decided to outburst in anger because you'd had enough... Um, does that represent an action that you didn't really want to do, but someone forced you to do it? Is that what's going on when we choose to disobey God's commands? What's your experience? What's your experience? Well, what we're seeing is that his control, we're being forced to think about the fact that his control um, descends into the realm of, our, of, of who we are, even, right? Um, and when I think of this question as a Christian, I think of the Romans 7 sorts of laments on Paul's part, that he sees in himself a battle. He has some new desires, but he finds himself doing, he says, doing what I don't want to do, um, and I don't think that's the same as what Billy's going through here. When, when we find ourselves sympathetic to Paul in that case, what's happening in me is I find a war within, but when I sin, what has won out is my desire for that sin rather than my desire for, for honoring God. I have chosen the thing that I wanted the most. Right? That's what we do when we make decisions. That's exactly right. That's right. Our will is led and guided by the affections. Jonathan Edwards wrote, writes a lot about that too and is, is pretty, um, it's some good stuff. Um, let, me, let me add in another question here to this. When God is driving human history, and as he does that, I mean, sometimes he works outside of any means at all. And, and uh, usually he uses means, and many times those means are human beings, right, to direct human history. Now, uh, when he makes use of human means in a fallen world, what sort of vessels does he have at his disposal? Does he have only sinful vessels at his disposal when he's making use of humans to accomplish his plans? Are there any sinless humans on, walking around today that he could use that one? to get this done instead of a sinful, instead of a sinner? There, there aren't, right? There's only sinners walking around on the earth. Um, when he uses a sinful vessel to accomplish his purpose, what comes out of sinful vessels? Doesn't sin come out of sinful vessels? I remember Tri- Paul Tripp, uh, he has a picture, he, I've seen him do a few times with a water bottle, where he opens the water, you've seen that, and then he, he spills it, and he says... Um, now, why did water come out of, the, of this bottle? And the answer is, well, because you shook the water bottle. And he says, well, no. let me change my emphasis. Why did water come out of this bottle? Why didn't apple juice come out of this bottle? Well, because there's not apple juice in the bottle. There's water in the bottle. What's in the bottle is what's going to come out of the bottle when it gets shaken. right? As God is making use of his human means... Uh, We are going to live... Don't we believe? Aren't we a people who believe that our best efforts are always tainted with sin? As he makes use of us, um, this is is what's going to happen. Uh, But when he exercises his control... Because that's just who we are. Uh, But when he exercises his control to accomplish his purposes, the Bible does not present that in such a way that people are compelled against their will to sin. They're just doing what they want to do. We're doing what we want to do in those situations. This is something that that MacArthur says about this. He says, Although God controls by divine decree and sovereign power... ...everything that goes on in the world according to his own purposes... ...that does not remove one iota of culpability from those who do evil. Evil uh, evil Evildoers do evil not because they are forced to but by their own evil intent. So God will judge them for both the act and the motive, as well as for their failure to give him glory and to worship him. This is the way, when the Bible speaks of these things, this is the way that it puts them together. Now, there is, we are most certainly, we've wandered into an area where there is not just complete crystal clarity. There is some mystery in how this this happens. That's why, as he said, theologians have wrestled with these things for a long time. But our goal is not to be the first ones here in Amarillo, Texas, at Evangelical Fellowship to solve this. It's not our goal. Our goal is to say, um, can I, how, how well can I understand the picture the Bible has presented about this and then get busy believing it, submitting to it, and asking the question, what does this call me to do and to be if this is how God works? So, this is where I think thinking carefully about freedom is going to be really helpful for us. So, let's turn to uh, freedom. Uh, the big problem in a lot of this conversation is that we use the word freedom, are we free? Like we all know what we're talking about, like we're all saying the same thing. And it's one of, you know, every word in the English, in, in, in language, has more than one meaning. And freedom certainly has more than one meaning. And those different, those different meanings are really different from each other. And it's really important that we know what we're talking about. So he, he lays out three uses, three ways that we use the word freedom. And I, f- I found this really helpful. So the first one is the freedom to do good. Uh, this, is, this is called moral freedom. The freedom to do good. And Frame says, as we have seen, Scripture teaches that Adam's fall took away our moral freedom. So that apart from grace, we cannot, in terms of moral ability, please God. And I wrote down Romans 8, 7, and 8. Notice the ability language in here. Paul writes, For the the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't say, do not or tend to not, it says they cannot please God. And that's because of the bondage that we are born into because of our sin. This freedom has been taken from us because we are by nature sinful creatures. This is the bondage. The separation from that is the bondage that Jesus uh, sets us free from. So John 8, 34 through 36. I don't think I have this up here. Oh, well, I do have that quote. Um, John eight thirty four through 46. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, we, we think of that last statement. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's like one of our, uh, our motivational Uh, verses we memorize, but notice the context of it. He's talking about there slavery and freedom regarding sin. Slavery to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So we would say as Christians, if if, if we have been washed in the blood of Christ and we're new creatures now, we've been adopted into his family, we've moved it out from darkness into light, we would say uh, Jesus has restored this freedom and is increasingly restoring it to us. Uh, we are not in bondage to, the, uh, to, to our sin like we were before we were saved. Things are changing because of what Jesus has done. Um, he says, frame says, Moral freedom is the most important kind of freedom mentioned in Scripture. However, it is not a condition of moral responsibility. And here's what he means by that. Those who are enslaved to sin are still morally responsible for their sin, just like those who are free in Christ. So losing my moral freedom does not mean that I am no longer morally responsible. So think of that. Here's a category of people, all mankind without Christ, that lack this freedom and yet will answer for who they are and what they have done, right? Right? So there's one way that we use the word freedom and that the Bible uses the word freedom. But that's not the one that we usually mean when we're asking these questions of, am I, am I really uh, free to, to make my choices in light of God's control? That question is wrestled with by these second two definitions of freedom. Right. So the second definition of freedom, in terms of the way we use the word, is called compatibilist freedom. And this simply means if if I am free in the compatibilistic sense, I'm free to do what I want to do. When I make my choices, they are a genuine reflection of what I want. I'm not being forced against my will. And if I'm not being forced against my will, then I can say this is a free choice. Billy's choice was not exactly a free choice in that. He could have decided to take the pounding, but he's eight years old. I understand. He wasn't quite free in this sense. He wasn't doing what he wanted to do. But when I choose to do the things that I do, if there's not a gun to my head, I am doing what I want to do. Um, Several uh, pictures... And see what Mac did again, even to the quote here. Luke 6.45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Well, he used a different translation. Let me read what you can see. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of uh, the heart, the mouth speaks. All right, We're familiar with that, with that passage. What is that saying about me? It's saying that what comes out of my mouth wasn't forced by someone else to come out of my mouth. It came out of my mouth because that was what was in my heart. That's what I wanted. Um, if this is true, then what we're saying when we speak of ourselves as free, as we're saying that we speak and act according to our character. It's not a completely undetermined thing that I do. I don't just speak or act for no reason at all. I speak or act as a result of who I am, of of my character. Um, And this is the way we think of everyday sorts of freedoms. In everyday life, we regularly think of freedom as doing what we want to do. Isn't that the way we, we think of these things? Compatibilist freedom means that. E- I don't think this is up here. No, it's the next one. Compatible freedom means that even if every act we perform has a cause outside of ourselves, like a natural cause or the will of God, we are still free in that we can still act according to our character and desires. There is interplay here, but it does not strip from us. Um, our desires and our character as, as an agent in the world. So here is um, kind of a big quote. I hope it's even barely re- oh, it's not too bad for the font size. Frame says, th- "This might take some chewing on. This is a little bit This is, probably the, this is the only kind of deep quote I put up on, on here for, from Frame. We saw earlier that moral inability does not remove moral responsibility." We just talked about that. Um, Our study of compatibilist freedom can help us to see part of the reason why. Moral inability is simply the character of unregenerate human beings. They are free, in the compatibilist sense, to do what they desire to do, though their desires are evil. Moral inability does not, in the least, lessen compatibilist freedom, so it does not lessen responsibility. So this is the second, u- second way we can use the word freedom as a, in terms of compatibilist freedom. the Freedom to do what I want to do. Now, there is another way that the word is often used and that we can sometimes even by default think about freedom um, that we're going to see is a really big problem. Right? This, is, this, is, this is not... Uh, well, anyway, I'm giving away the farm here. The, the third way that we can speak of the word freedom, is by what we call libertarian freedom. Libertarian freedom. This is the belief that the human will has an inherent power to choose with equal ease between alternatives. With equal ease between alternatives, no matter what. That doesn't mean, this, this view doesn't say that we're not influenced in any way. But it is making the very bold statement that for a human being, sinful human being, it does not matter what influence comes at me. It doesn't matter what influence. If it's a direct influence from God, it might be powerful, but I possess the ability and the freedom to, at the last second, choose something else. There is no influence in existence that can... um, as a result of which, I can be sure something is going to happen. I can always choose something else. Ultimately, the will is free from any necessary causation. Uh, this even gets into the realm of our, my, my character and my, my inmost desires, my nature. Those things cannot determine my choices at all. So they will say, we always have the freedom to choose contrary To our character and desires. However, strong, the will can therefore make a decision contrary to every motivation. Now, I hope you can already see some of the problems that this would create, and we're going to look at them. Uh, But here's, here's probably the biggest problem with those who hold this position they insist that this being the case, if we don't have this kind of freedom at any given moment, then we're not responsible for what we do. If we do not possess this level of freedom in a decision, then we cannot be held responsible for our choices. Now just think very carefully about what that means. When we're thinking about the notion of God ordaining a thing to happen, before the foundation of the world, he has declared the end from the beginning, and it will be. Right, Under this this vein of thought about human freedom, he might ordain a given event or outcome, but he cannot authoritatively ordain the means that he will use to bring that about. Because what does he know about what Abraham will decide to do at the last second? He can't finally determine those things. So, what we have here then is a God who is all through history having a, a general plan and then having to react to human decisions, whoop, poong, and ping it back. To, to finally get to his plan. Maybe, that, maybe in this line of thinking, God's f- ultimate purposes will prevail, but God is going to have to do a lot of correctives. And, and he doesn't talk about it in here, but it's always struck me that if that's the case, I, I don't know how anyone can hear, hear that and think, yeah, I'm really free in that. Because what that means is that my decisions really don't mean anything. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and God's going to just whew, knock it back wherever, wherever he's going. Right, my my decisions then are useless, if this is the way that it works. Uh, so I've never understood how this makes some people feel better about being a, being a free creature. Uh, but this this is a big problem as we think about the authority and sovereignty of God um, and the the concept of Him being eternal and His decrees being deter- being eternal. So we're, we're going to go. I'm going to give go, go through some of the uh, critiques. Uh, From the chapter here, I think I have six of them. Six of them. Um, First one is this. All the biblical data from chapter 4 is incompatible with this idea of libertarian freedom. All of the places where God made the claim that he turned things this way and that according to his will and that none could it could stop him. We looked at 35 passages in all of those little subcategories. Let's go over those 35 again. Just kidding. Let me give you four of these. These are the general ones. I'm not talking about the specifics of sin or human decisions. Isaiah 14, 24. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. Hear these and just ask yourself the question, how important does it seem to be in the mind of God that humans would have the um, eternal freedom to, uh, to operate outside of. You see what I. I just don't hear that being a big priority in God as I read him say these things. Isaiah 43, 13. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Well, apparently, all of us can, if we just decide to. Right? Daniel four thirty five. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say to him, What have you done? Um, Psalm one fifteen, verse three. Our God is in the heavens; he does all that he pleases. Um, so this is the first uh, critique or problem to put up here. All of those things that the Bible says about God and what he does in human history, they don't match up with this concept that we have this, this ability. Um, number two, scripture condemns some people for acts that were clearly not free in a libertarian sense. And the best example of that is of the decision of Judas to betray Jesus, the, the decision that was clearly prophesied beforehand um, and that he went and, and did. And frame he quotes a guy named Greg Boyd, if you've heard of him. Greg Boyd is one of the leading proponents of the result of this libertarian freedom idea. He's an open theist, which, which is this taken. And they go, well, if this is the case, then there's no way God can actually know the future. Because the future depends on what we decide. He can't know it. So God's discovering the future as it unfolds. That's what they believe. Greg Boyd is a major proponent of that. Even he writes about Judas's decision to betray Jesus and says, um, um, yeah, this decision was not a free choice in this sense. It was not free. But see, the problem with that is that the Bible turns around and condemns Judas for it. Jesus said it would have been better for him if he'd never been born, right? So here you have at least one time where a clear, clearly a decision was made that was not free like this, and he is being judged by God for it. But under their idea, God God can't judge him for it if he didn't have this kind of freedom. So that's a problem. Number three, we don't even do this in our own civil courts. The justice of man doesn't require something like this. You can imagine a bank robber coming up before the court and the task of the prosecution. that In order to declare him guilty, you have to show that his decision came out of no influence inside or out. He just decided to, or else he's not, he's not to be held accountable for it. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't mesh with any sense of justice. Um, number four, Scripture teaches that in heaven, we will not be free to choose to sin. Right? Do you have a picture from your Bible that after Christ returns and we're glorified, that, that, uh, that there's some potential for some problems to come up there? We might, in spite of every influence, just decide to, to go away again, or has God seen to it? that that will be in the past. So if that's the case, then what we have here is a situation where in our highest state of human existence, we will, we will lack a freedom that we possess now. That, that, that's hard for me. I read, I read uh, a guy once, a very popular Christian fiction writer, uh, Ted Decker. I don't know if you've read anything of his. He's, his story, he's got some pretty cool stories. But the guy, so at the end of this book, they had an interview with him, and um, he laid out his conviction that this this freedom represents the height of what God has done in creating man. And so his perception, he he, he laid it out there very clearly, that he thinks what's going to happen is all of eternity is going to be this process of of fall and redemption, fall and redemption. So Christ will come back and save us, but we're still going to have this option. At some point, someone is going to choose to pull the trigger. And plunge us into sin again. And then God, there's going to be another round of, of history and redemption. And, but it's, this is going to happen eternally. Because we have to always have this level of freedom to be humans. So there is no hope of the final tear being wiped away ever. And he, he felt very pleased with this. Because for him what matters most is that we would be free like this. That no one could tell us what to do. That's what matters most. And he's willing to pay a high cost for that. Uh, Number five, this idea rejects the clear sense of Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and Luke 6, 43 through 45. These are the places where Jesus says things like, um, the good tree brings forth good fruit. The bad tree brings forth bad fruit. He's not talking about trees there, is he? He's talking about people. And the whole point is, an evil tree cannot just decide one day, in spite of any influence, to pop out a good fruit. That's not the way this works. We have, there are determinations on what we do. And this does not mesh with that concept. Uh, number six. Not even God possesses a libertarian freedom. Since God always must act according to his own nature and holy character. Does it say of God that he just consistently chooses not to lie? Or does it say that he cannot lie? We never have to worry about God being um, a promise breaker and deciding 50 millennia from now to shake it up a little bit and to be a promise breaker and to stop keeping his promises to us. We never have to worry about that because he acts according to who he is. And if this is true of us, then we have a freedom that God does not have. It's hard to even imagine such a thing being called a freedom. right? So these are six critiques of this. Frame lists out 18 critiques. You can go and read the rest of them if you want to, but I wanted to show you these six. Um, And my hope is that setting this idea side by side with the compatibilist freedom description, if we're trying to wrestle with, I feel like I'm a free creature. How do I understand this? My hope is that putting them side by side helps to make this very clear, how one idea of freedom is simply impossible, not just untrue, but impossible while the other reflects what we're already naturally aware of in us. That God's purposes are working, and as he works, he works by means of, uh, of our purposes. Uh, there's, there's a, we don't have time to get into it, but there's, a, there's a, a con- the concept of what we call concurrence in these things. That is a very important reality when we wrestle with how, um, how I am responsible even as God is sovereign. Um, So, in in rejecting um, that understanding of freedom, what are we to say then? So, I've got uh, three sort of concluding statements, and then we have a minute for some comments or questions. Here's number one Uh, It is improper for me to say that I am only free if my choices are made with no influence whatsoever. Such a situation does not exist. Can't. Uh, conclusion number two, I will define freedom in terms of my ability to do what I want to do. So, in moments of sin, I must say, A, God is still in control of what is happening, and B, I am choosing according to my desires. I'm doing what I want to do. And then number three, God in exerting well, we've already seen, that efficacious and universal control over all things is never compelling a sinner to sin. Sinners sin because that is who they are. It's important that we be able to, with confidence, say something like that. What's difficult about it is that there is mystery here. There is. But we must be able to assert such things, lest we blame God for what is what sin is happening in the world, or say what Paul anticipates. Well, then, who, why does he still find fault? Because who can resist his will? Remember, Paul anticipates that very question in Romans. And all he says is, on the contrary, who are you to answer back to God? Right? It's not like Paul never saw these struggles coming. It's that he knew we had no business thinking ourselves in a place to be able to, to, to question Um, Last, ooh, that's dark. Uh, This is Carson. Uh, I'll close with a quote from Carson. Uh, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices. But human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. So there's the the blending of these things. And I would just close with this question. Where you are right now in your thoughts about God and how he works, are you able to assert the first part of that number two? That you choose, you believe, you disobey, you respond, and there is moral significance in those things. So there is a weight behind the commands of Scripture. So it is 1031. Think of the child care workers before you answer this. But you have any questions or comments? Um, no? Okay. Well, let, me, let me pray for us, and, and uh, we'll close. Father, again, we just simply stop and thank you. We, 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 are, we are reaching at things that are so clearly above us. And yet this is something you command us to do. To seek to grow, to understand you better. You are uh, are a mystery to us, but you have not left us without revelation concerning your ways. So thank you, Lord, for these chances you give us to be confronted with your self-revelation. And Lord, give us a heart more and more that always our instinct is to submit to who you tell us you are and to always and everything to praise you for who you tell us you are. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.